And now a reading from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, beginning in verse 31, reading through verse 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant with me, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. No, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my instructions within them and engrave them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will no longer need to teach each other to say, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sins. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. I've got to be honest. Sometimes when I sit down to write a sermon and find myself staring at the blank white computer screen before me, there's this cynical voice in my head. Perhaps it's the voice of reason. I don't know. That reminds me that I have absolutely nothing new or wise or intelligent to offer. It happens more often than any reasonable preacher should admit out loud. But really, what is there to say about love or hope or faith or peace or justice that has not already been said? How do you create a new clever spin on God so that maybe this time people will leap to their feet, energized for the cause of justice and righteousness, in gratitude for a loving creator who has made us in her divine image and has given us all this? Where are the words? What is there to say? And then just as there are those dire, doubtful moments, there are other times in which I am absolutely convinced that the messages of love and hope and faith and peace and justice that we proclaim as the church, well, they're the most important words there are. You know, that nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God. That God so loved the world that there is no longer Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female or this or that, but that we really are all in this thing we call life together, even some, even though some of humanity has yet to realize it. Oh, surely and goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And at such moments, I begin to see myself, maybe in the words of St. Paul, that though I may see things dimly sometimes, from my own limited experiences or perspective, that though I know the truth only in part, someday, some fine day, I hold out hope to see things more clearly. Thank God for moments of clarity. Now, those kinds of experiences, moments where I think I see things clearly like that, they inspire me and sustain me. I don't know about you, 
and I can feel it from the top of the tallest hair, well, that I used to have on top of my head, to the bottom of my smallest toe, that faith and hope and love and peace and justice really do matter. And when we can find and form the vocabulary and muster the courage, speaking about things like these really has the power to change us and to change the world. I've seen it myself, up close and in person. It can be done. Sometimes these fleeting moments of clarity, they happen when I least expect it. May, or maybe in places and circumstances many would think odd. Sometimes these moments of clarity, they happen maybe when I'm worshiping. Maybe with you or with others who share our vision for life and faith. But I'll take these moments of clarity and inspiration whenever and wherever they come. They do have a way of carrying me through the rough times until the next time I can catch a glimpse of everything that is good and holy. Hear these words again. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, says the Lord. I will put my instructions... Or, another translation, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. This hopeful passage in Jeremiah is spoken at a time when no one would hardly expect such a definitive assurance of God's abiding presence. The time these words were written was 587 years before the Common Era, roughly 600 years before the birth of Jesus. The Babylonians have conquered at that time the kingdom of Judah and by force removed them from the two clearest symbols that the Jewish people had of their God. The temple in Jerusalem? Oh, destroyed. And secondly, their king, Zedekiah, taken away in chains. This doesn't seem like the appropriate time to be speaking of the nearness of God does it? Have you ever had one of those days or weeks, I don't, or I don't know, maybe years, maybe a year even of a global pandemic, when it seemed like nothing much was really going in your favor? It felt like everything was just stacking up against you. Whoever said bad things happen in threes was right, except when they hit you by the dozens, maybe threes in terms of dozens. And then right there, smack dab in the middle of your misery, it never fails. There's that one friend, that one loved one, who walks up to you and says on their smug but sweet little face, but God is always faithful. And you sort of want to smack that person. Oh, I know we wouldn't really do it. Because I'm sorry, it just doesn't feel like that's the case in those moments, does it? Well, that annoying guy, he has a name. His name is Jeremiah. What Jeremiah the prophet wanted his people to know and remember in one of their greatest moments of destitution and desperation is that God's faithfulness remains intact even when we've recognized that God in the past doesn't necessarily jive with our current reality. Despite our unfaithfulness, our rebellion, our violence towards one another in creation, that God has not and will not abandon us. 
God is the air we breathe. God is the love we share. God is the hope we find when we least expect it. That God is the spark of life in every creature and in the entire universe and every other universe for that matter. So to say that God would actually abandon us, that God would not actually abandon us, rather, is not wishful thinking. God abandoning us is a literal impossibility. If you listen carefully, though, Jeremiah doesn't say that God has already written these reminders on our hearts. But instead, that is what God wants and intends to do, but of course cannot do without our full cooperation and acknowledgement of God's presence in and all around us, abiding with us, come what may. The days are surely coming, Jeremiah said. They're on their way. We're leaning into them. This is what God desires. I like to say it this way. This is God's vision, God's dream for the world and for me. And it would serve us well to start living this way by acknowledging that we live in the grasp of a love that will not ever let us go. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to one another, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. There are some who read this prophecy and wonder if God's gotten a bit tired of the whole free will thing, that maybe what God has in mind is some kind of computer chip implanted in our brains to just make us function like a robot. Hey, maybe that's in the COVID-19 vaccine. Oh, bad joke. But if we could get that implant, you know, so that finally we would have no other choice but to live in the full knowledge at all times and in all places that we are loved no matter how many times we fail, flounder, flub, or flop. After all, that law will be written within us. It will be written on our hearts. It will take over our bodies. We'll all know God, it sounds like, because we won't have any other choice. Now, I don't buy that interpretation at all. Because God's dream for the world, God's beloved community, God's kingdom, to say it that way, has never been a plan to control us, but to be with us, to comfort and challenge and encourage and love us when we need it most. But we have to choose. We have to act on these things. Isn't that the history of our God? who desires above all else to love us and love the world through us? And isn't that our story as well? Because during the roughest of times, just when every reasonable expectation would have us abandoning the idea of God altogether, like you might have expected from the Israelites back in Jeremiah's day, and it somehow, it seems, we cling to God all the more closely in those times. It's almost counterintuitive. But that's the way I've seen it work more often than not. There have been a few occasions in my ministry I've had the chance to worship with congregations whose beloved buildings 
had either been burned down recently, perhaps by a lightning strike or faulty wiring, or or other times when in my ministry I've worshipped at a congregation's last public worship service where they were gathered to close their beloved church family as well as their building. That beloved church family, the one with whom they had gathered to celebrate their children and grandchildren's baptisms, the one with which they had gathered to bury their loved ones, the one where they had felt God was near so many times before. And when I've been worshiping in those situations there, gathered together, often under a veil of great sadness or anxiety, I've always marveled at how those congregations sang and how their worship seemed genuinely even more robust, even more heartfelt, even more awe-inspiring than on, quote, normal days. How is that sort of thing possible? I've often wondered to myself. It's as if God's love really is written on their hearts, within them, you might say and not just on the cornerstone of their church building that will no longer belong to them or is already burned down. The great preacher Fred Craddock used to say that he had a habit of intentionally memorizing scripture or verses of favorite hymns or inspirational poems or lines of literature so that, you know, when in the middle of a sleepless night or Maybe when sitting in the hospital waiting room or when pulling up the driveway of a friend who had suddenly passed away to go visit their family, he could pull out those reminders and repeat them to himself. And if it just seemed appropriate and not superficial or trite or preachy, he might even share them with others who were hurting. Not written on little slips of paper, that Fred Craddock would carry in his pockets, but written in his memory. I guess you could say they were written on his heart. I think that's the vision Jeremiah had and spoke to the people of Israel about, that faith can be just that close, just that natural, just that free, just as near to us as our next thought, as necessary to us as our next breath. But for faith to be this way, it has to be an authentic expression for us of our truest selves in light of the goodness of God and how we reflect that goodness and love to the rest of the world. Sometimes we get so bogged down in our minds or with what we are not or what we're against that we never let go and live out what we're really for. The laws of God have been studied, they've been interpreted, they've been practiced for generations and generations. The, and that law reveals God's loving will for humankind and God's eternal covenant with all of creation. And it is holy, precious, and beautiful. And for Christians, in the life and teachings of Jesus, we can see the lengths to which God will go to write this law, this love, on human hearts a redeeming, restorative love that shows us how bold and how selfless God's love can be, a crucified love that reveals the depth of pain God will endure with us even as we suffer 
a resurrected love that cannot be swallowed up by any temporary setback or disappointment, not even death itself, an eternal love that knows no end on either side of death. Like our ancestors before us, we're all a work in progress. And sometimes we live in light of that unending love, and we celebrate it, and we embody it, remembering that that love comes from within us as though it is this amazing source of love and life that is written on our very hearts. And sometimes we forget, and we wander aimlessly, or we ignore the needs of our most vulnerable neighbors. Maybe there are contributing factors. Maybe we're disillusioned. Maybe we're enduring trauma or hardship or injustice. Maybe we're just tired. Maybe we put up our defenses as though we are all alone and have never been aware of the incredible love of God within and around us when we get in those difficult places. But the truth is, we're not alone. We're never alone. For we have a God who comes to us in human form, in Jesus, but also in one another, who sparks our remembrances, shapes and reforms us, even in the midst of our own messy lives and in the course of human history. Again and again, God reveals to us a presence that refuses to let us go. And by this loving presence again and again, we are reformed. Reformed to live in light of this truth written on our hearts that God will never let us go. Not now, not ever. Thanks be to God. Amen.